our reading this morning um, is from Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full, that when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. Peace be with you. Thank you for uh, wearing some masks this morning. I know it's a little odd. It's, uh, it's a little different. Uh, it could be the new uh, normal for a little while, uh, whether that's like four weeks or 10 months, we don't really know. Um, but it does seem to be one of the ways that we can continue to gather in person. I know for me, uh, that's one of my great prayers in this season is that we might be able to continue to gather in person, not go back to Zoom. Uh, we can do it if we need to, but uh, my goodness, this is way better. So really good to see you all and uh, at least, you know, this bit of your face. It's great. Um, there's, there's one aspect of Christianity that I often hear come up in conversations with people outside the faith. When I'm talking to one of my, my you know, non-church attending friends, this idea of, of total submission to God, uh, it often comes up. Somebody might say, I, I just can't give my life completely to any one religion or to any one person for that matter. And they might say, I, I like to pick and choose from the different religions. I like to draw on the wisdom of each tradition and, and kind of decide what I want to draw from each thing. There's a, there's a slightly more Christian version of this, which is to say, uh, you, can, you can follow Jesus, you can go to church, but, but you don't have to give your life completely to him. I, I mean, you don't have to, to do everything that, you know, that it says. It, it doesn't say in the Bible you have to give your entire life away. You can hold a little bit back to yourself. The problem being the Bible actually does say that in James 4, submit yourself to God, submit yourself wholly to God. But there's this assumption that if I give my life fully to God and fully to Christianity, that I, I will be made to do things I, I don't want to do. I'll have to believe things I don't want to believe. I'll, I'll, I'll be asked or demanded uh, to do things that are just, just too much for me. And, and my contention is the way I would respond to this it's not that we, we don't want to give our lives fully to someone or something. I think we actually do long, deep in our human nature, to give our lives completely away. We just haven't found a, a person or a relationship or a cause worth giving our lives to. I mean, think about it. In, in romance and in love, I think almost every one of us would say, if I could have a perfect spouse, I would be willing to be married for the rest of my life. 
Or, or maybe at work, if, if I had the, the perfect job, if there was this great cause that I could give my life to, and I had the perfect role, the perfect job within that cause, and if the, the pay was incredible and the benefits were incredible and it was just a perfect place to work, I would be willing to work there until I retired. The problem is not that we don't want to submit our lives to something, it's that we haven't discovered anyone or anything worth our complete devotion. There's a great song by uh, Fleet Foxes, which is an indie rock band. I know it's like super typical of a mid-30s white guy to quote indie rock, but here we go. They say, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique. Like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. But I don't, I don't know what that will be. I believe we have this deep God-given longing to give our lives away and to know that every ounce of, of submission or obedience on our part will be unquestionably worth it. This is one of the paradoxes of Christianity. When everyone else is trying to be their own boss, uh, uh, clinging desperately to a sense of control and autonomy and freedom, we believe that true freedom, joy, and wonder It's found in giving our lives away completely to Christ. To say, your will be done. Not my will be done, but but your will be done, O Father. And so that's the phrase we're looking at today within the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. What does it mean to pray this? What does it mean to live this? In particular, three things. How Jesus lived it, why we pray it, and then how we pray it. And along the way, there's two more aspects of prayer that I want us to look at, lament and unanswered prayer. And so the first thing we're looking at is how Jesus lived this phrase, your will be done. As far back as as Psalm 115, Psalm 115 opens with this incredible phrase, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And, and Jesus, he not only knew this verse, but he lived this verse. He, he breathed this verse every moment of his time on earth. Just after he was baptized, at the very beginning of his ministry, before he called his disciples, before he did any miracles, before he taught anything, Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days to pray and fast. And it was at the end of this 40 days of praying and fasting that the the devil, our enemy, came to Jesus and tempted him three times. A temptation to to use his own gifts for control, for comfort and pleasure, turn these rocks into bread. There was a temptation to use and control others, throw yourself down and the angels will catch you. And then third, a temptation to be powerful. The devil said, you can have all the kingdoms of the world. All three times, Jesus is offered a a shortcut to power, to control, to a life of ease and comfort and security. And all three times, Jesus rebukes the devil. All three times, he actually quotes Deuteronomy, three quotations from Deuteronomy to, to refute the temptations of the devil. It's like the highlight for Deuteronomy. You know, it's like been in the shadow of Genesis and Exodus all this time. It's like one shining moment for Deuteronomy. But from the the very first moment of Jesus' public ministry, he he decides that he is not going to give in in to the temptations, to the schemes of of the devil and of the world. 
And if you think about it, this moment is like a second chance for mankind. It's, it's what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. The devil comes to them as a serpent and says, did, did God really say that? Does God really love you? Here's, here's my way that you could experience freedom and joy. You can be just like God. It's essentially the same set of temptations, and yet Jesus does not give in the way that Adam and Eve did, the way that we all would have if we were there. But Jesus was faithful. He was obedient. In essence, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And so that was the start of Jesus' public ministry. But then sort of an, another bookend is at the very end of his public ministry, just before he's put on trial, before he's arrested and killed. He knows all of this and he leads his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. He moves forward by himself into the dark heart of the garden. And he prays, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. That's a, a profound prayer for the Son of God to pray. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The cup is a, is a well-known symbol in, in the Old Testament. It's a symbol of God's wrath, his, his righteous judgment against sin in the world. The cup is, is God's pouring out of his, his judgment on all sin and on all evil. And Jesus knew he was about to drink this cup. He was about to take the full punishment of sin onto himself for us in our place. And yet in that moment, what he was most afraid of was not the physical pain and the anguish of crucifixion, but it was separation from his father. This, this eternal relationship of father and son was about to be severed as Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first and only time in his life, not heard a response. And so there in, in the garden, knowing all of this was about to happen, Jesus prays, is it possible, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. But in the very next breath, in the very same verse, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then it's the very next day as Jesus is hanging on the cross between two thieves. All of his disciples have left. They've gone into to hiding. Now he is alone and dying he could have mustered up one last miracle. He could have used his, his almighty power to bring himself down from the cross. There's no question. He could have hit pause or, or you know, said, like, I'll take care of this another day, and he could have come down. And yet, as, as his lungs were collapsing, as his heart was being torn in two, he says his final words, into your hands I commit my spirit moment of incredible faith and trust, of commitment to his Father's will, even in the agony of losing his presence. And so as we've said throughout the series, the Lord's Prayer, it's not just meant to be prayed, but it's meant to be lived. Not my will, but yours be done. It's not just something we, we offer up in a prayer, it's something we live at every moment of our life. Because Jesus didn't just pray these words, but he lived them. Every word, every phrase in the Lord's Prayer, he didn't just pray them, but he lived them. He embodied them. He showed us the way of true life. And so the second thing is why we pray this. Why do we pray, your will be done? 
And we might say, is it actually more freeing, more, more wonderful? Uh, is it better for us to, to give ourselves totally to God? Or, or should we try to hold just a little bit back in case it doesn't work out? Should we pick and choose a few of the commandments we don't want to follow, some, some aspects of Christian teaching that we're not totally on board with? This is without a doubt one of the hardest parts of the Christian faith. To think, does God really care about how I, I use my money, whether or not I'm, I'm generous with my money? Does God really care about my work, how it affects other people, the, the means of my making money, my voting, my lifestyle? Does God, does God really care about what I do in private if, if nobody else sees it, if it doesn't affect anybody else? How could it be that God could, could place all these demands on me? And the answer is that he loves us and he knows us. He's all loving and all wise, and so he knows what's truly best for us. As a, as a wise and, and loving God, he understands both the broken world that we inhabit and the particulars of our human nature, and so he speaks to us on, on all matter of topics. He's able to, to show us the way of Jesus, the good life. He holds it out to us in a way that we can actually attain it. And this is especially true in, in the midst of our our grief, our pain, and our suffering. He continues to show us the way, even though it's difficult for us to follow in that way. When we don't understand, I, I often think of it when our, when our boys were really young, you know, when they were like, you know, infant stage, and we would have to put them down. We'd have to hold them, I won't say which one, or hold them for like an hour, two hours before you could actually set this kid in the bed or the crib, and he would sleep. And so the whole time we're, we're holding the little kid, we're you know, we're, we're singing a song, we're talking over him, we're praying just, please go to bed. And the kid is kicking against us, he's screaming, he's crying, he just doesn't understand. He does not want to go to bed. It, it feels like for this little kid that we are robbing him of his freedom. He wants to stay up, he wants to do things. And so he's lashing out against us as the parent as we're trying to hold. But, but we know this is, you know, I remember thinking, why would you not want to go to sleep? Sleep sounds so good right now. I just want to sleep. Why would you not want to sleep? And yet the kicking and the screaming continues until finally they, they give up, they give in. You have to outweigh a child. That's basically the essence of parenting as I understand it. But as a wise and loving parent, we know the child needs sleep more than they need to stay up and keep doing whatever they want to do. For their health and development, we as a parent absorb all the kicks and all the screams. Because our, our love is greater than, than our, our uh, you know, we know that, that they need this. In our love, we know that if they continue to stay awake, life will not go well for them. And so as a child of God, we have to be able to say, your will be done. I don't understand this. I'm raging against it. I'm kicking and screaming. This is not the will that I have for my life. And yet at some point I will submit. Your will be done. And now the third thing is, how do we pray this? How do we pray your will be done? And, and here's where two questions come into my mind. Two things that I, I think if we're going to talk about prayer, we have to talk about these two things, even though it's, it's not as exciting or not as popular to talk about them. And that's, that's lament, which is how do, I, how do I respond to the brokenness of the world, the brokenness within me? And then the second thing is unanswered prayer. What do we do when our prayers aren't answered? And so the first thing is, is lament. How do, we, how do we respond to the brokenness and the evil in our world? 
a lament. It's similar to what we just did in our congregational prayer. It's, it's a way of, of showing our, our frustration, our doubt, our, our anger, and our anxiety, and bringing those things before the Lord. A lament is a prayer of frustration in its essence. It's, it's sorrow over some form of pain and suffering. And the Bible is full of laments. Something like half of the Psalms contain an element of lamenting. There's an entire book of lamentations. I won't read the whole thing now, but at some point I'd love to do a whole series on the lamentations. And often when, if I'm talking to somebody who is going through an incredibly difficult time, whether they're a believer or not a believer, if they're saying, I just don't know why God would allow so much pain and hardship in my life. I just don't know why he's not helping me in this moment. I'm so angry. I feel so alone. And I'll say, well, well have you told him that? Have you taken that to God? And it might seem absurd to actually take all your anger with God to God, but that's exactly what the scriptures invite us to do. That's actually one of the godliest forms of prayer that we have. We take our frustration, we take our sorrow, we take our our fear and our worry and our anxiety, we take all of our kicking and screaming and we take it directly to the Father in prayer. Now there's an example, Psalm 80, from from Asaph who wrote uh, mostly laments, he wrote about a dozen psalms. Asaph is like the, he's like the the head of the lament group in the the psalms. This is like, it's like blues music. It's it's a form of prayer, a form of music. These were all written to be sang, but it's a way of acknowledging the hardship of the world. And so Psalm 80, Asaph says, Hear us, shepherd of Israel. Awaken your might, come and save us. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. That's a bold prayer to take before the Father, but here's how Asaph closes Psalm 80. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. I think the problem is not that we complain too much to God, but that we don't complain enough to God and that our complaints don't end in a prayer of faith, of saying, restore us, Lord God. Make your face shine us, shine on us, that we may be saved. Through the Psalms, the prophets, Jesus' prayer, they're, they're inviting us, they're begging us to be honest in our prayers. Whatever it is that we're feeling, whatever it is that we're wrestling with, to bring that directly and boldly and honestly before the Lord. The sadness, the anxiety, the depression, the fear, the jealousy, take it directly to God. As we're overwhelmed with the brokenness of the world, the injustice, the poverty, police brutality, broken political systems, wars, the first impulse as Christians shouldn't be to go to social media. The first impulse is to go to prayer. To say, how long, Lord God Almighty, you have fed us the bread of tears. We're drinking tears by the bowlful. Restore us. And this is lament. This is, this is in the Lord's prayer, the, the cry of your will be done. It's a, it's a form of lament. 
It's saying, I I don't understand everything. This is not how I would do it. And yet, nonetheless, we trust you. We seek your face. May your will, not my will, be done. Now, the second question and and where we'll, we'll finish up today is, what do we do with unanswered prayer? One of my favorite things to do is to hear great stories of of prayers that have been prayed and and things that have happened, ways that God has intervened in in time and space to to answer a prayer, to heal somebody, to to raise the dead. If you look at the Old Testament, the examples are incredible. You look at the life of Jesus and the miracles are profound. But we also have to acknowledge that prayer is one of the most wonderful things and one of the most difficult and frustrating things. Because how many of our prayers go unanswered? What do we do with that? Now, first of all, on on an intellectual level, we know that God wants us to pray to him and that, that his father, and so we struggle to know why would he withhold anything good from us? And on, on one level, I think we have to acknowledge that God couldn't possibly answer everyone's prayers all the time. They, they would totally conflict with each other. Like if you're on a Saturday morning and you're going to a wedding, it's an outdoor wedding, And so you and all your friends are praying for no rain. You're pouring your hearts out. May it not rain. We've got a wedding. Hold back the rain. And then on the other side of the street, you've got like, you know, a dozen farmers and all their families. And they're like, this drought's been going on for months. Please let it rain. You know, there's a wedding every day. We would never have any food if it never rained. And so there's a sense in which so many of our prayers cannot be answered by a good and a righteous God. C.S. Lewis has a a pretty good quote on his book on miracles. He says that God can and does on occasion produce miracles as part of Christian faith. But the very concept of a stable world demands that these occasions should be extremely rare. Now that's the intellectual side, but I think what's more important, what I know is more important is the personal level. God has the power to answer our prayers. Why would God let his people remain in pain and suffering for so long? James 5 says the prayers of the the righteous will will be heard. They'll be effective. And so is the problem that I'm not good enough, that I'm not praying hard enough. And yet in this very same New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul pouring out his heart three times, praying for a burden to be lifted. And and Paul, I don't think, did anything halfway. These are probably intense seasons of intercession, begging the Father to remove this burden from him. And yet God only says, my grace is sufficient for you. I know for me, I've been praying for years, things that, that have not come have not been answered. Prayers for for people to come to know Christ that continue to not live for Christ. Praying for for my 20-year struggle with depression to be lifted. And as far as I know, it hasn't been. Prayer doesn't always work the way we want it to. It's incredibly frustrating. Maybe you're praying for uh, a spouse. Maybe you're praying for your marriage to turn around. Maybe you've been praying for a child for years. Or maybe your child has gone far from the Lord. These are prayers we pray over and over and over. We don't even have to remind ourselves to pray them because they represent such deep pain in our hearts. In just the last couple months, we've had friends lose their jobs. We've had friends get divorced. We've had friends lose a child to cancer, a friend of a friend who committed suicide. 
And in every situation, I want to cry out, God, where were you? You could have prevented this. You could have stopped this. All of this pain and grief and suffering, you could have prevented it. Where were you? What we know and what the gospel tells us, the only thing that's comforting in these moments is that we believe in a God who has suffered for us and has suffered with us. The Son of God willing to die in our place, to to lose the presence of God for a moment, to fully taste the pain of death, abandoned and alone, And then God the Father who had to watch his own son die. I I can't imagine watching a child die. But God our Father has. He's, He's suffered a pain and a loss deeper and greater than anything we have ever experienced. And so in Christianity, we may not have all the answers about prayer and when it works and when it doesn't, but we know that we have a God who has suffered real pain himself. And suffered that pain out of great love for us. And so we know that he is, he is actually with us in our pain. He's actually with us in our, our suffering. He knows what it's like to experience loss and grief. Christianity alone offers complete realism about the pain and the hardship of our world and complete hope that God is still with us. That he's still working all things to this glorious end. In Psalm 30, one of David's laments, he has this great line. He says, Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And we know this is true because Jesus himself, he tasted the full darkness of death. He suffered long through the night, but then rose from the grave on Sunday morning. The pain and the weeping lasted for a night, but then rejoicing came with the morning. And so we know one day all of our weeping, all of our pain, all of our suffering will be turned to rejoicing just as sure as the sun rises every day. It's because of the cross, because of the empty tomb that we can pray and we can live. Your will be done. Let's pray.